I almost said, Brother Bob, would you dismiss us in prayer? And I thought, I better not say that. <laughs> I don't know who all would get up and run out or not, but we've got to have preaching or else we've not done it right. It is good to be here this morning, and uh, we're thankful uh, to be able to worship and gather with God's people and to gather around God's Word. I want to invite you to take your Bible and make your way to the book of Ephesians chapter number 2, Ephesians chapter number 2. We're going to be in verse 4 down through verse number 7 this morning, and that is our text as we've been uh, preaching expositionally through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we finished verse 1 through verse 3 last week. And uh, we'll continue here and go through verse 4 down through verse number 7 today. The title of the message is very simple and stolen right from the text. In verse 4, it is, but God. But God. You understand those two words are the most important words that we'll find here. Uh, That is the pivotal transition. uh, The point in which that turns us and makes us different. And so I will point this out to us as we come through the text, but let us read here in verse number 4. Paul the Apostle writing to the Ephesian believers, uh, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful passage of scripture this is. But we think about for a moment, what hope is there for the hopeless? What can be done for the dead? Who can make the blind to see? The answer to those questions are obvious to us. The hopeless cannot give themselves hope. The dead cannot raise themselves to life. The blind cannot grant themselves sight. If there is to be any change in such conditions, it must be affected by someone outside of that condition and someone who has power over such a condition. And this is the truth that Paul has made known about who the Ephesians were in their past sinful condition, their past depravity in sin. And as we looked last week at verse 1 through 3, Paul detailed the depravity of man in his own sinful nature. Man's depravity left him in a spiritually dead state, which rendered him lifeless, alienated from God who is life, but also Powerless, powerless to change his condition, powerless to save himself. Man in his sinful condition causes him to follow his own sinful desires, to follow the course and patterns of the world, and to follow the influence of Satan and all the forces of darkness. Man's sinfulness made him worthy of God's wrath, as Paul says here, they were children of wrath. They inherited that. But as we noted last week in this chapter, I pointed out that verses 1 through verse 7 is one long sentence in the Greek language, somewhat like the doxology we see in chapter 1, verse 3 through verse 14. And so in verse 4 through verse 7, he's continuing this one sentence. Now, it's always important to finish our sentences, right? 
It would be terrible if he just stopped at the end of verse 3. But we see he concludes this sentence. He finishes this sentence with an imperative note that we must see. And it begins with these two words, But God. But God. This is so essential to us. But God. You see, in our past we were dead in sin, worthy of eternal judgment. But then there's this transitional statement of, But God. See, this is the only hope that sinful man has. It is that God does something to change our condition. God does something to save us. God does something to rescue us. Because there is no one who can help us or save us from our wretched state but God alone. And this is the marvelous truth of this text. What Paul says about their past sinfulness is a reminder to them to magnify the glory of God and who they are now in Christ. You see, God has saved and continues to save sinners from their hopeless and helpless condition. Aren't you glad that He's still saving souls? He's not done. He's not done saving souls. He has saved us, and He continues to save. And we consider ourselves in light of this, as, as Paul is bringing the Ephesians to do. We who are Christians, we also at one time were dead in our trespasses and sins. We also followed after the course of this world. We also were influenced by the forces of Satan and of darkness. But when, and when all seemed hopeless for us, it was God and God alone who intervened on our behalf. So Paul is going to make this point unmistakably clear, that it is only because of God that these Ephesians have been raised to spiritual life by their union with Christ, and that they are blessed beyond measure for all of eternity. These two words, but God, are the hinge upon which all salvation hangs. These two words, are the hinge upon which all salvation hangs. So notice with me in our notes this morning, I want to point out some truths from this text that I pray would encourage us and challenge us, even convict us here today. Notice with me, number one, we see the character of God shown towards us. The character of God shown Towards us, and there's two aspects of his character and his attributes that we see right here in verse number four. We see firstly that God is rich in mercy, he is rich in mercy. And so with this transition of but God, He is leading us into this monumental shift of what has happened to the Ephesians. This but God is meant to bring to memory the reason that the Ephesians are no longer in their dead state, no longer following the course of this world, no longer children of wrath. And I believe that this is a great need for us even today. We need to remember who we were. We need to remember where we've come from. We need to remember who it is that's made the difference. That it's God alone. As we read through the history of Israel and the Old Testament, there's one of their greatest tragedies is that they often forgot about how good God had been to them. Generation by generation, 
we find that uh, often there would be a generation that rose up that did not know the Lord or did not know about all that God had done for them as the people of God. They were recipients of the mercy and salvation of God, experiencing deliverance from their enemies over and over again, yet they frequently forgot how greatly God had worked on their behalf. And that forgetfulness often led them to live in a way that did not please God. Isaiah 17.10 tells us, For you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger. You can go on and read the rest of that context, but you see the principle of what's happened there. They had forgotten all that God had done. And we too can easily forget if we're not careful. As we get comfortable in our life, If we forget about the depths of God's grace, it is usually as we're in our forgetfulness that we are prone to veer off into sinfulness because we forget the depth of God's grace and what it took to rescue us from that. So notice why God has enacted such salvation for us. It is because of God's character and His attributes. Notice in verse 4 that God is rich in mercy. Now, there are many people who are rich in many things. People are rich in material wealth, knowledge, talents, and and so on and so forth. And many desire to be so. But look at God for a moment. He does not strive to be rich, but He is rich because of who He is. Not just materially, that's what we often think of when it comes to riches. But He is rich in ways that exceed all other ways. His very character and attributes exceed what we could fathom as riches. And Paul says he is rich in something specific here. He says he is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. Now think a moment about mercy with me this morning. Mercy here is kindness or a concern expressed for someone in need. It can also be rendered as compassion or pity or clemency. You see, His mercy and compassion have been demonstrated repeatedly throughout the Scriptures and proclaimed by the Bible writers. You remember what was proclaimed to Moses when he had his encounter with the Lord back in the Old Testament in Exodus 34-36. We read that as the Lord had passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's mercy is on display all the time. It's on display uh, throughout ancient Israel as we read of them, that He had been merciful to them throughout their history. It is on display to us as His people. His mercy is always on display. Our God is a merciful God, and in His mercy... He shows compassion and pity upon those who are in desperate need of it. I like this quote by the Puritan George Swinock. And he says of God's mercy that God is incomparable in His mercy. Mercy is an attribute of God whereby He pities and relieves His creature in misery. It is an attribute which relates to the creature only. God knows Himself and loves Himself and glorifies Himself, but He is not merciful to Himself. It is an attribute that relates to the creature in misery. Justice seeks a worthy object. Grace is exercised towards an unworthy object, but mercy looks out for a needy and indignant 
object. Mercy is manifested because we're the ones who are in misery. We're the ones who are in need of it. So the greatest act of mercy we see is through the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. That is an act of mercy that God has shown towards us in showing pity and compassion for lost sinners. Now, mercy is often stated as this as well. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. How many of us have heard that description? That is a true description. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, right? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And there's great truth there. You see, the Lord has looked upon His sinful people with pity and compassion, and in so doing with His mercy, He has withheld from them the wrath that they do deserve. Now, what did Paul say here? We see a contrast that Paul's given between verse 3 and verse 4. He says that we were the children of wrath, meaning wrath is what we deserved. But what is it that held back the wrath of God from us? It was the mercy of God. The mercy of God is what holds back the wrath of God. We deserve His wrath. But in His mercy, He withheld that wrath and instead poured that wrath upon His own Son as He died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. God's wrath must be poured out, friend. And understand this. God's wrath is poured out either on the sinner or the Savior. And the difference is in who is in Christ and who believes on Him and who does not. Now, you often hear this phrase, Lord have mercy. You ever heard that phrase? You see it often with people who maybe are about to die. They'll say, Lord have mercy on my soul as a final desperate plea before they die. Why do they say that? Because sinners have a conscience that bears witness to their guilt. And when you're on the brink of death, you understand that you're about to meet your Maker. You're about to enter beyond what you have not experienced and that you are accountable before God. We read of mankind in Romans 1 and verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, that's what dead sinners do. Truth goes to them, they just ignore it. They suppress it. They don't want to hear it. So their only plea is mercy. But understand that that not all who plead for mercy will be granted mercy. Many only plead for mercy as a last-ditch effort to escape the condemnation they know they're worthy of without any regard for Christ and the gospel and what He's done. Understand this. There is no mercy without Christ. There's no just general, I'll just call out to God and He'll show me mercy. Understand, mercy is only received through Christ. That is why it's in Him we find all through this passage. So many plead like that uh, in a way because they know they're guilty. Like a thief who may claim they'll never steal again only because he's been caught by the authorities. It's too late at that point. God is sovereign to understand this over His mercy as we see throughout Scriptures. Romans 9.15, for He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion 
on whom I will have compassion. This is a saving mercy Paul writes of. So you understand that there are those who are proud in their sin, who will perish by their sin, and we see a great contrast of this in the account of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember this account where Jesus speaks of these two who came to the temple to pray. and The Pharisee came up to the temple in his great pride and boasting of his goodness and thanked God that he wasn't as the rest of the sinners are. Yet it was the tax collector who had the right response towards God. Luke 18, 13 says, The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew that he needed mercy and humbly pleaded for it. And the truth is, whether in life or on a deathbed, I do believe there are such a thing as deathbed conversions, but not all of them are genuine. True mercy comes to those whose hearts have been so affected by the Spirit through the gospel to see their need for it. And I'll have you note this too, that there is a measure of mercy that extends to all humanity in a general way. What do you mean? The very fact fact that sinful dead men get to continue on in their rebellion against their holy Creator and live and breathe and live a full life is an act of mercy from God. He is merciful to His creation. Psalm 145 and verse 8 through 9, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Because if man truly received what he was worthy of, at the moment he's worthy of it, understand we wouldn't exist. We'd all be wiped out like a dam that holds back the weight of the water. So God's mercy holds back the weight of His wrath. And so the central point here is that God is rich in mercy. And it is because God is rich in mercy that the Ephesians are who they are now, that they are no longer those dead sinners following after the world appointed unto wrath. But not only is God rich in mercy, we see also that God is great in love. He's great in love as we look at verse 4. You'll notice what Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. So you see that this mercy of God rushes forth from the spring of God's love. If His mercy flows from His love, how great then must His love be? It is often the central focus of men to only speak of God's love. And it is true that love is the character of God. Praise God for this. He does not merely possess love. He is love. 1 John 4, 8, the apostle writes, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. But how is it that the love of God is manifested towards us? How is it that we know of how good His love is and its depth? It is because of who His love extends to and how it is extended. Now here's how you see the depth of God's love. God's love firstly extends to us who are wretched sinners who have sinned against Him 
who has run away from Him, who have been hostile towards Him. We pointed that out last week, that the nature of man before conversion is hostile towards God, whether directly or indirectly. But you notice in verse 5, what does he say connected with this love? He has loved us, in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Do you notice that God did not love us because we were good enough for Him to love us? He did not love us because of anything in us that He saw. We had no goodness. We had no strength. All that was in us is sin, and God has a hatred for sin. We were not God's friends. We were His enemies. Do you remember what Jesus taught His disciples about love? He told them to love who? He said, love your enemies. Love your enemies. And why did He tell them to do this? Luke 6.32 says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Even dead sinners love those who manifest love to them, right? Of course they do. But loving your enemies is an entirely different way of love. How do you love someone who hates you? That's what we're called to do as Christians. And why is it we're called to do that? That is a direct reflection of God's love towards us. Why? Because we were enemies of God. And yet He still loved us. Secondly, we also note that God's love is extended, how God's love is extended towards His sinful people. His love is manifested through the blood atonement of His own begotten Son, the God-man. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.10, In this love is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation deals with atonement. Satisfying the righteous demands of God's holy justice. And what is it that brought to pass this marvelous work of redemption? It is the love of God. You understand that this love is beyond measure, and it is extended to us who did not love Him. The most well-known verse in all the Bible, and probably the most abused at the same time, John 3.16 manifests this same principle. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. What is it that brought about God giving His Son? It was a love for the world. What is it that provoked this? It is the depth of God's love. It was not that God saw good in the world, but that He set His love upon a people that He determined to save from their sins. And those people are those who believe. And they are found throughout the entirety of the world. This love expressed towards them was not grounded in anything of the sinner, but in everything of the Savior. Now Paul expresses this truth plainly also in Romans 5. If you'll go there with me, I want to read this. Romans 5 and verse 6 through 9 for a moment. Notice this description. Romans 5 and verse 6 through 9, he states, For while we were still weak, 
At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God, there it is again. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. You see what Paul's pointing out here? It was while we were weak, while we were sinners, enemies of God, that He died for us. Why did God set His love upon us as weak, helpless enemies? Why are we made objects of His love and His Son given for us? What is the answer to that? The answer is simply this, that God was pleased to do so. God was pleased to set His love through His Son upon us. There is no definite, finite answer that would satisfy our flesh. The answer rests in the infinite counsel and purpose of God. As Paul said in chapter 1, He chose us, He predestined us, He orchestrated redemption for us in Christ, all this done in the Spirit for us. It is according to the purpose of His will, which is beyond what we can really fathom. Now, there are many things to which we could ask why to, but the answer simply is this, is that it is rooted in the perfect, loving will of God. So the character of God, His mercy and love, is the foundation of what the Ephesians experience in their conversion. Which brings us to number two. Not only do we see the character of God shown towards us, we see the change that God worked in us. We see the change that God worked in us. And this is the point of the whole text. It's a contrast of the beginning of the sentence with the end of the sentence. And notice there's three distinct things he brings out here about our change. And the first one is this. We are made alive with Christ. We are made alive with Christ. Notice verse 5 with me. What does Paul say here? He says... Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, you notice that he immediately said, we were dead, but now what are we? We're made alive spiritually. This is a contrast. We were lifeless. We were powerless. But now by God's quickening, by His grace, we have been given spiritual life and spiritual power. The Greek word here, rendered, made us alive together with. In our translation, you have several words there, but it's just one Greek word. And it's translated exactly as it means, that this life we have is directly in connection with union of Christ. There is no spiritual life outside of Christ. There is no life outside of Him. He alone is life to us. Jesus told His disciples in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. No man comes to the Father but through Me. The Apostle John said in 1 John 5, 12, Whoever has the Son has what? Life. Whoever does not have the Son, what? Does not have life. So so it's a clear principle that union with Christ equals life. 
Now, Paul has in reference here the spiritual life that is given to us when we are converted through regeneration and united to Christ by faith. Now, how is it that this life is imparted to us? Well, firstly, it comes through the call of the gospel to sinners. As the gospel is preached, the dead sinner is called, convicted, brought into faith through the work of salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 through 14 tells us, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word called is a frequent word used by Paul to to speak of the way in which we came to Christ. We were called out of the world by the Spirit through the gospel. This is the means to which we get saved. But secondly, understand that this spiritual life is implanted to us through the Spirit's work of regeneration, making us new. Notice, if you would, in Titus, chapter number 3, and verse 4 through 7. Titus, chapter 3, and verse 4 through 7. Paul is really giving a similar description that he's giving in Ephesians 1. Excuse me, Ephesians 2. He describes their past, but then you see in verse 4, but, another transition word, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Right there, you have a detailed process as to what happens in our conversion. We were washed by regeneration of the Spirit. Now, what does this regeneration mean? This word regeneration, according to the Bedag Greek lexicon, means to experience a complete change of life. And this is the whole point of the whole text. A complete change of life in Christ. Is the life of a person truly changed by this new birth? Absolutely it is. And if a life has not been changed, they have not experienced the new birth. Plain and simple. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. So understand that, that with this working of spiritual quickening, there is a change of heart, a change that happens from the inside out. I was reading this account about George Whitfield. We are all familiar with him. He was a preacher of the 18th century, and he preached frequently on regeneration and the new birth, because that is what salvation rests in. He preached it thousands of times. He was preaching his heart out one day during a great awakening sermon, and a man with pockets stuffed with rocks came to hear him for the purpose of physically attacking the famous evangelist once the sermon 
ended. Now, if you're here with a pocket full of rocks, I really hope God changes you before the sermon ends. But after Whitfield's powerful message, the man made his way to the preacher, emptied his pockets, and said, I came to hear you with my pocket full of stones to break your head. But your sermon got the better of me and broke my heart. The man was changed by the gospel in the midst of the preaching of the gospel. Sounds a lot like Saul of Tarsus, doesn't he? He's on his way to kill and capture Christians. But God strikes him down. And friend, this is essentially what happens when someone is regenerated, when they're born again. They are stopped in their tracks. They are brought to faith by the work of the Holy Spirit. We are made alive through the effectual call of the Holy Spirit as the gospel is preached to us. Like Jesus calling Lazarus by name from the dead, so He called us by name from the spiritual dead. And with this new life given to us in Christ, He now resides in us by His Holy Spirit. And we are no longer the dead sinner we once were. In fact, we now have been changed with Christ in us, living in us, changing us, molding us, enabling us to please God. Galatians 2.20, Paul put it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. But notice at the close of this verse is a parenthetical statement, and it's an important statement. We'll look at it more next week. But at the end of verse 5, you'll see this parenthesis where Paul says, By grace you have been saved. Why does he say this? Because this spiritual life they now have came only by God's grace and nothing of them. As we pointed out, we can contribute nothing to a spiritual resurrection. They did not deserve it, nor could they earn it. And here is the amazing truth of our spiritual recreation. Just as God breathed into lifeless dust to give life to Adam, the Lord breathed spiritual life into those who were spiritually dead. And this is something God alone can do. So this quickening, this being made alive in union with Christ, is what solidifies the next two realities he points out. So notice with me letter B. And secondly, not only are we made alive with Christ, we are risen with Christ. He says this in the next verse of Ephesians 2. He says in verse 6, And raised us up with Him. And raised us up with Him. So Paul has already touched on this marvelous truth in his prayer in the last chapter. He prayed that they would know the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us. And to describe that, he talked about the resurrection and ascension and exaltation. You see, the resurrection of Christ is the hinge on which our spiritual life hangs. Our spiritual life is predicated upon the fact that Jesus is not dead. That He has risen. Friend, if He had not risen, He would not have be a Savior who could give us life. But Jesus promises that He would live and His disciples would live in Him. John 14, 19, Jesus said to them before He went to the cross, Yet a little while and the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me. Because I live, you also will live. And so the point of this union with Christ is that we are interwoven into the redemptive plan and accomplishment of Christ. When Christ died, His people died with Him. When He was raised, His people were risen with Him. 
When he ascended, his people ascended with him, as we'll see. This is the spiritual position of the Christian, and it has changed our life for all of eternity. Our spiritual death has been swallowed up in Christ's resurrection victory. The guilt and power of sin have been conquered by the Savior. Now Paul put it this way to the Romans in Romans 6 and verse 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And this is what the resurrection of Christ does for us in our life here. It causes us to walk in newness of life while also gives us assurance of our own bodily resurrection to come at the last day. And since we have been changed in such a way, our perspective in life and how we live is no longer the same. Now now look at what Paul connects this with in Colossians 3. I've told you that Colossians is a companion letter with Ephesians. You'll see some of the same truths expressed in different terms. But notice Colossians 3 for a moment. Verse 1 through 4. He says to these believers, If then you have been raised with Christ, there's that terminology. If you have been raised with Christ, what then? Seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your affection, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. This is the contrast of this whole Greek sentence. When we were dead, what did we live for? We lived for ourselves. We lived for this world. We lived for the temporary. But in Christ, we've been risen. We've been brought life. We have a new perspective, a new purpose. We live now for the spiritual, for the eternal, for the heavenly. Because we're not dead anymore. We are risen Christians, and we must live beyond this present world looking unto the eternal. Which leads us further to this next change and position that Christ has placed us in. Notice thirdly, that not only are we made alive with Christ, not only are we risen with Christ, but notice that Paul says in verse 6, that we are seated with Christ. We are seated with Christ. Now this, this truth is hard for me to fathom and understand, but this is the Christian position. Look at verse 6. He has raised us up with Him and seated us with Him where? in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Now, now it's hard to wrap our minds around this, but nevertheless, it is true. Paul just talked about Christ being seated in the heavens. Chapter 1, verse 20 through verse 21. He talks about Him being exalted to God's right hand and how He's been given authority over all powers and and all sorts of, uh, of, of leadership. And so what does this mean? It means that since we are in Christ, we share in that exalted position. Not that we are the same as Him, but that we are partakers of that blessing. 
Could it have ever been thought that we who were dead in sin should be exalted with Christ to such a heavenly position? There is no position better that we could think of or place ourselves in. You know, when I was a younger preacher, I used to listen to Adrian Rogers over and over again. Adrian Rogers, he, was, he had a way with words. He was a great orator and preacher of, of, of God's Word. I thought it would be so cool if I could see where he preached and just stand in his pulpit. I thought that, you know, a young preacher, that's kind of a thing you think about. During one trip with a couple other preachers passing by where his church was, we stopped there and where he used to preach there at Bellevue in the Memphis area. They let us in. We walked around that massive auditorium, and I snuck up onto the platform and said, I'm going to just stand there as if I'm Adrian Rogers, and I'm preaching to this large, large crowd. I thought it was so cool as a young man just to be in the place where Adrian Rogers had preached. I've grown over that, by the way. I don't think that's the cool thing to do anymore. <laughs> Amen, right? <laughs> but do you know what's even greater than temporarily standing in a great preacher's pulpit or being in any other person's position, no matter how high and mighty it might be? Even greater than all those things is being in an exalted heavenly position with the Son of God. I can't even fathom or wrap my mind around that, but yet it's true. This is the position of who we are in Christ. And these Ephesians needed to know this because they would be entrenched in spiritual warfare with great forces and authorities around them, and yet they needed to understand that they in Christ had power and authority over the devil and over the works of the world, over all that opposes the kingdom of God. 1 John 4.4, the apostle writes, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Who is it that's in us? It is God Himself, Christ, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now we see throughout other texts of Scripture authority given to the saints and this, this, this idea of reigning with Christ, being in that position with Christ, and it's not possible apart from our union with Him. Revelation 3.21, He says to the church in Laodicea, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and also as I also conquered and sat down with my Father in His throne. That shows the great privilege of the Christian and being identified with Christ in that heavenly position. We see this up further explained in Revelation 1 and verse 5 through 6 that, that the believer is in a position of authority because the true believer is one who has conquered and he is in a position of royalty because God has made him such. Revelation 1, 5 and 6 says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what it says about us? He made us a kingdom and priests. That word for kingdom is also translated as kings and refers to kingship, royal power, royal rule. There's other connections we could tie, but we don't have time for that. But here's the reality is that as Christ reigns, we reign with Him because we are in Christ. This royal position changes our lives to live for the exalted King and His kingdom in this world. And I'll close this point as John Flavel says this, Christians, you ascended with Him virtually when He ascended. You shall ascend to Him personally hereafter 
Oh, that you would ascend to Him spiritually in acts of faith, love, and desires daily. And that's the point, is that who we are in Christ must affect the way we live for Christ. And here's something I want to point out too as we end this point. All of these phrases Paul mentions, all of them, He made us alive, He raised us up, He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. They're in the past tense. You know what that means? They are not acts that we wait for, although there is future aspect to them, but they are acts that we have already experienced in Christ with our conversion. And here's the reality. There are many believers walking around the world who have no clue who they really are in Jesus. They have not grown to learn and see the depth of their position. Siri's trying to correct me. You're wrong. I don't like Siri sometimes. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> it always happens but at a specific point. Christian, I want you to understand the position that God has placed you into. It's beyond comprehension. Which leads us to number three. And I'll be quick. I know, I'm almost done. I want you to see the cause of God saving us. The cause of God saving us. Two things, real quick. Two things, real quick. Number one, to give His people a glorious future. Why did He save us? To give us this glorious future. Notice what verse 7 tells us. Verse 7 points us to a definite future. He says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. Now, when Paul says in the coming ages, he's speaking of all future eras of time. It could refer to eras of world history, but essentially it refers to the whole of it, including that final eternal state. Now, what this points us to is that we as God's people have a definite future in Christ in which the immeasurable riches of His grace will be known to us and experienced by us. Now, here's the reality. We live our mortal life day by day, never knowing what a day may hold, what a week may hold. We don't know what our mortal life future holds. But there's one thing that we do know. We know what the next world holds. We know what our future is in Christ and how rich it is towards us. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with, his great, with Him graciously give us all things? We've yet to comprehend the depth of God's riches and grace towards us. But let her be, and lastly, the cause of God saving us, and this really is the central point of what verse 7 is about, it is to reveal the wonder of His glory. To reveal the wonder of His glory. Notice that Paul says, those first two words, so that. So that. It's a, it's a continued sentence. Remember this. He's made us alive. He has raised us in Christ. He has made us sit with Him in the heavenly places. So that. So that something would be shown. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Have we ever thought about why to all of what God has done? Why did He uh, choose us before the foundation of the world? Why did He make us living saints? Why were we dead in sin, yet He raised us to life? Why did He raise us in Christ and seat us in the heavens? 
Beyond those questions, why create the world and history at all? Why? You understand that God in His own nature and character, He needs nothing and is completely satisfied and sufficient in Himself. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Why do all of this? The answer is that God desired to display His glorious grace in Christ Jesus towards His people for His own glory and praise. That's what it all boils down to. So that we would experience and know the infinite glory of Almighty God. For how would we have ever known what grace is in the depths of its riches were it not through this eternal redemptive plan that He has brought to pass. Why God lavished such love upon His people so that they will marvel for all of eternity over the incredible kindness and love of God. It will take all of eternity to fathom God's love. And those who are saved will never plumb the depths of it. Now Paul says in his closing doxology of Romans 11, Romans eleven thirty six, for from Him and through Him to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And that is what this is about. As we look at the whole of Ephesians 2, 1-7, through 7, what do we see? We see what God can do with such a mess. You and I were a sinful mess. All of us are and were. Then it comes to verse 4. But God, but God intervened by His mercy and love to change us from dead sinners to glorious saints. Now, we may not always recognize how glorious a position we have in Christ, especially since we still wrestle with our flesh in this world. But we must always look back to what God has done and that our union with Christ has changed us forever. I'll close with this quote by Samuel Rutherford. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. As I can tell you, the more I look at myself, the more discouraged and defeated I feel. But we're called to look to Christ because God says, I've put you in Christ. You've been made righteous in Christ. You've been risen in Him. You've ascended with Him. You are in Christ. Let us rejoice in that. Let us rejoice in that. And today, if you don't know this grace, if you've never known Christ, I pray that today you would see, you would see the depths of your sin from Ephesians 1, 2, 1 and 3. And that Christ and His mercy, His atonement on the cross, His resurrection, that is your only hope. If you see your need of salvation, look unto Him. Believe on Christ. That is the call of the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's stand to our feet as we prepare for a closing song. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning, so thankful for this text of Scripture. We thank you, Father, for the mercy and the love that you have bestowed upon us. We don't deserve it. We could not earn it. And that is why it's all by grace. It's my prayer this morning, Father, that you would work in the hearts of your people to remind them Father, how much you've done for them and who they are in Christ. 
And if there's any this morning, Father, that is lost and undone and realizes that, Father, that you would draw them into faith, that they would trust in Jesus and know of a surety that they have been changed and saved by your mercy and love. We pray these things in Jesus' name.